Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, Dr. Seth Kendall returns to the show, and we're going to have a conversation that's going to explore what scholars know about the third year of a five-year war that is commonly known as the Social War. And that was a war that was fought between the Roman Republic and many of its allied communities on the Italian peninsula during the years 91 to 87 BCE. The show has a series going right now where it is understanding the events of the social war more. And so it is creating individual episodes that correspond to individual years of the war. So one episode, so each episode will correspond to a specific year within the war. And Dr. Kendall has been on the show twice in the past where we covered year one in one episode. That was on July 9th, 2021. And in another episode, we covered year two, which was on August 5th, 2021. So those two episodes are findable online if you haven't listened to them yet and want to listen to them. And they're, of course, findable as well on podcast apps that syndicate this show. Today, Dr. Kendall's back on the show, and we're going to speak about year three of the five years of the war. Again, that's commonly known as the social war. Dr. Kendall is Associate Professor of History at Georgia Gwinnett College, based in the US. His primary research is on ancient Rome during the Republican period, with secondary fields in classical Greece and late antique, and minor fields in ancient and medieval science and technology. He's author of the book, The Struggle for Roman Citizenship, Romans, Allies, and the Wars of 91 to 77 BCE, which was published by Gorgias Press. And Dr. Kendall joins the show today from the state of Georgia in the US. Welcome back on the show, Seth. Thank you for having me. So I'm gonna ask a similar question to create enough background to, um, for, for those that are, that are listening today, Seth, and then we'll work our way through, through this year. And this episode naturally acts as a, as a sequel to the previous two episodes that we did on the first and second years of the five-year social war. But to create enough background and context to get us to where we are in the chronology of these events, can you share what's known about, more in a summary fashion, what's known about why the social war started? And can you um, cover again where we left off in the last conversation? So working our way to the, to the end of 90 BCE, and then we'll, then we'll move, move the conversation into 89 BCE, which is considered year three of the five-year war. Certainly. Um, well, the social war, which goes by a lot of names in the sources, uh, broke out because the allied communities of Rome in Italy, the uh, various communities like the Samnites, the Marsi, uh, later on, the Etruscans and the Umbrians, those sorts of people, who had been defeated by the, uh, by the Romans and made allies of them, uh, had been growing closer and closer to Rome culturally over the centuries. And they're, they were still independent, but their status meant that independence was really more exploitative um, than Roman citizenship would be. And what they wanted to do, many, most of them, is obtain this citizenship to end the exploitation. And um, they first uh, tried to, uh, they you know, began to, to try and take advantage of various Roman offers to them. 
to that effect, but every time they would accept it, it would be yanked back and that sort of thing. And so fi uh, finally, violence broke out in the year 91. Um, the year 91 was really just a preliminary, but it was the, uh, the, first, uh, the first sort of uh, year of the war in the sense that there were some troop movements, that sort of thing. The war in earnest really began in the year 90, and that had been a year in which uh, the Italian communities were mostly successful. Uh, the Romans did not have uh, an excellent track record during that year, uh, largely because they themselves didn't seem to take it seriously, um, and because they're uh, because the Allies were simply good at fighting. They part of the exploitation um, that they wanted to fight against was that they had been compelled to send massive numbers of soldiers to the Roman army. And so they basically knew Roman fighting techniques, knew Roman weapons, um, had Roman discipline. Um, they were almost, in fact, as the year proved, uh, proved, in many cases, better Roman soldiers than the Romans were. And that was basically the story of the year 90. One of the events that you shared in the last episode near the end was a very material offer that Rome made to these various communities and or states. Can you cover that, what, what that offer was? And then, and then we'll work our way into in more of the details in this year, in 89. Towards the end of the year 90, uh, sometime between uh, September and December, uh, the uh, sole remaining consul for the year 90, because the other one had died in battle, uh, had gone back to Rome for the purpose of conducting the elections. And while he was there, he put forth a law. And what this law, which was named after him, the consul's name was Lucius Julius Caesar, and the so-called Lex Julia, what that basically did is it extended a version of Roman citizenship, not a complete one, but a version of Roman citizenship to all the allied communities who had either stayed faithful to the Romans or... Uh, who had who had uh, erupted in violence, but had put down their arms quickly, to use the uh, the phrase uh, in the sources. And scholars debate what that means, but probably what it meant is those communities that had already surrendered, um, you know, they they so they had laid down their arms and they could be enfolded in this. And what this version of the citizenship would have done is eliminate most of the complaints the Allies would have had, but there still would have been others. And when I say an incomplete citizenship, what that basically means is they didn't have um, complete voting equality with the you know, the, the Romans who had already who were already citizens. Uh, they would vote later in the assembly and that sort of thing. And um, the later you vote in the assembly, the less likely it is your vote is going to matter at all. So um, many allies were content with this, or uh, or content enough with it that a number who had sort of been on the fence, most notably the Latins. Uh, the Latini were uh, a sizable community of uh, Italian allies, and they seemed, I mean, they seemed to have just sat the first year of the war out. They didn't take up arms against the Romans, but they didn't um, join them either. And this citizenship law seems to have, to have bought their cooperation. Okay. And... It was in 89, do I understand this correctly? It was 89 that the offer was made, but in 90, that's when there's some responses around this offer. 
Well, it was it was 90 when the law was passed. Um, in fact, this law doesn't seem to have been, it didn't seem to be the sort of thing where an offer was made. Um, Caesar just basically had the law passed and whoever, whatever communities wanted it could accept. And th there seems to have been some, um, some options there. If a community didn't want to become Roman, if they wanted to keep their independence, they could, um, but only the ones who were not actively engaged in combat at that time. So the law was passed in the year 90 to go effect really in the year 89. Okay. And I might have, I'd have to listen back to, to hear it. I might have inverted the dates there. Might might be fine, but I might have inverted the dates. And yeah, what I meant was the 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 offer. And you said more specifically, it's a law being passed was in 90. And then it sounds like there's some activity uh, around around this point in the conversation in 89, which is the year we're speaking about today. Correct. Yeah. Okay. All right. So how do you want to, similar question to what I asked uh, in the last episode, Seth, how do you suggest we approach the main events for this year? Do you want to approach it chronologically and, and cover some of the pertinent events, or do you want to cover it from a different approach and maybe cover um, main military events and domestic events and bringing in some of the responses to the, to the law that was passed? What do you suggest? Uh, I think we could do it more thematically. I think the chronology will sort of take care of itself, especially since uh, in the source of the chronology isn't really ironclad anyway. Um, but it seems to have gone something like this. In the year 89, there were two consuls, of course. Uh, Caesar was out of office and would ultimately go on to become censor. Um, but the two new consuls were uh, Gnaeus Pompeius Strabo, the father of the more famous Pompeius Magnus, who had been a lieutenant of one of the consuls and had spent some time in the area of Asculum. And uh, another, uh, another officer named uh, Lucius Porcius Cato, who had dealt with the late rebellion or the late uh, joining of the alliance of the Etruscans and Umbrians. And based on their successes towards the end of the year 90, they were able to uh, to win the office of consul. The sources on the one hand indicate the Romans were taking things a little more seriously. Um, these were two men who had, had not only military experience, but had had direct material military experience in the war itself. Um, and the year would be one of significant Roman victories, um, you know, almost an unbroken string of successes. But on the other hand, the Romans were willing to take things seriously, but not too, too seriously, uh, because one of the more significant events, well, more significant non-events, is that Gaius Marius, who had been, um, you know, of course, Rome's most successful general of his generation, and had won essentially the largest victory for the Romans in the previous year, was basically cashiered for the rest of the war. Uh, he was not invited to be a lieutenant, he was not elected consul, uh, so he sat the year 89 out, um, which might have, which, you know, which the Romans could probably get away with doing because they knew they had the upper hand by now because uh, the Latins had started to report for military duty and they now knew they had the numbers. So um, the first year is, 
again, it's characterized by you know, uh, by a string of Roman successes. There were some uh, some losses as well. Um, so that's basically the way the war went. Yeah. Okay. So a few few questions then to expand on some of what you've shared so far, Seth. Can you can you clarify so that uh, certain people aren't being uh, conflated in 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 the um, in the conversation? Can you clarify who Caesar was in this period of time that you're speaking about? He was a relative of the most famous one. I want to believe he was uh, a um, a cousin, perhaps. There's some there's some uh, question about this um, in the sources too. He definitely wasn't the father of or the grandfather of the most famous Gaius Julius Caesar. It was on a, a separate branch of the Caesar family line. Um, and this uh, Porcius Cato guy was probably related to the more famous Cato the Elder and the equally more the equally famous Cato the Younger, but was not a uh, in the linear path of either of them. So this Porcius Cato just happened to be in the family, but was not the grandson of one or the grandfather or the father of the other, um, that sort of thing. What, at the start of the year of 89, what would the main parties on both sides have been? So on the Rome side, was it still only the Roman Republic or did they have... Uh, certain allies at that point, and then what would be the main communities or states on the other side? Well, the community, the same communities or states from the previous war, uh, as far as the allies were concerned, were still there. Um, though they would begin begin to be knocked off, mostly because they would be defeated. And once they were defeated, they would surrender, which they apparently did in a sort of piecemeal fashion. Uh, the, the, the main movers were still the Marci, the Samnites, the Lucani, um, the Picentes, uh, the uh, Maracene, those sorts of people. So, and, and when the year started, um, pretty much all of them were still there. I think the Etruscans and the Umbrians had basically been knocked out of the war by this point, but everyone was still there uh, fighting on the Allied side. As far as the Roman side went, it was still the Roman Republic, but um, by this point, they were joined by the Latins, who had recently been made Roman citizens. So they would have been, if you know, if you looked at the, the, the actual numbers, uh, the Roman army would have been bolstered by new citizens who, up until you know, essentially January of '89 or up until December of '90, would have been considered the Latins. Does that make sense? Yes, thank you. In the last episode, you spoke about. Marius's track record. So he was, by this point in time, very well known in in Rome. He wasn't, it sounded like, early in his career and hadn't yet made a name for himself. It's it, you, sh you shared his track record and it seemed he was very well known. What's known about why he, he um, I got the sense that, uh, based on your, your early response, that he 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 was forced to sit out. So what's what's known about why he uh, didn't partake in military efforts in this year? Well, the story goes that he begged off because he was he was ill. Um, but that I mean everyone at the time because all the, all the sources mentioned that everyone at the time saw through that. The reason he didn't take part in the uh, in the in the war this time around is because he wasn't asked. 
And he wasn't asked because Marius was a very well-known military figure and was a popular hero. The people loved him. But the senatorial class, um, the class of people who, of course, were in the Senate who were running for high offices, uh, they knew him all right, but they couldn't stand him. Uh, they couldn't stand him because he was a, what the Romans called a Noah's homo, a new man, meaning someone whose ancestors had never been consul. And there was all sorts of social stigma about that. There was the fact that uh, he tended to be kind of brusque and he wasn't um, what we now call political. Um, he he, he took a sort of delight in not being terribly refined. But there, the, none of that was as bad as the fact that he had already won the office of consul six times thus far. And in fact, had, had won them, like five of those had come in succession, one after the other. And, you know, um, he, this aroused hatred for him, uh, not because he actually took any steps to, you know, to become a tyrant, because it, but because it looked like he might. And the Romans had this extraordinary loathing of would-be tyrants or would-be kings. Um, and because every time he was consul, um, someone else couldn't be. So that sort of created a, a back, uh, sort of a, a slowed down the political careers of many prominent Romans. Uh, and he was, he, won, he soaked up all this military experience, which again, meant that other people couldn't. So the senatorial class is essentially hated him and feared him and wanted to keep him such that he, could, he couldn't win a lot more popular victories because he might parlay that into running for the office again. Apparently he was interested. So to confirm, did the Latins in this year accept that citizen offer? And what, what other states or communities accepted that offer in 89 BCE? The Latins definitely did. Um, there were, uh, there were uh, some southern communities in Italy that accepted it as well. Uh, there was actually a, a court case that happened um, because there was a, um, a, a Greek citizen uh, in, in a Greek-speaking community in southern Italy who apparently uh, did accept the offer, but his community didn't, um, because th that could happen too. The, the offer was voluntary. Uh, so there were a number of, of in Greek communities, for whatever reason, didn't want to become part of the Roman state. They wanted to keep their, uh, essentially, Greekness. Um, so a number of, uh, of communities did accept it. The Latins were far and away the most prominent ones. But the, the combatants in the war either didn't accept it because they knew it was defective, or as is more probably, it wasn't really offered to them because they were still actively in arms. The Greek communities, what's, what's known about and I believe this is the first time that's come up in, in our, our dialogues, so I want, to, I want to touch on it a little bit more. What's known about the Greek community's relationship to this war by this point in time? So where were the Greek communities predominantly located, and what shows up in the records about their relationship to this war? They were predominantly located in southern Italy, in the part of Italy that the Romans themselves referred to as Magna Graecia, 
or greater Greece because there were more Greek people living in southern Italy than actually lived in the place that we know as Greek today, Greece today. Um, they, their communities, the ones that are known historically to have been Greek, so um, some, some famous ones, for example, like Herculaneum and Pompeii, they were known uh, to, they were, uh, they were combat areas, but it seemed that the Greek citizens themselves uh, didn't take part either way. So the allies couldn't, I mean, the allies were able to, uh, to induce some of them, presumably, presumably those who had a high Italian population, but the Greeks themselves don't seem to have taken a, uh, to, to taken a significant role in the fighting. Their communities were fought over by the Romans and the allies, um, but the Greeks themselves, to the extent that they could, sat this one out. Okay, so when scholars look at the records, the these Greek communities by this point in time they they're not they're they're not considered in the catchment of the term allied uh, an allied community of Rome. No, that, that that's correct. They are not. Okay. How many battles during this year? So if we talk about the the the, the martial affairs in this in this year, how many battles show up in the records? And do you want to speak more about some of the, what you feel are the important um, points or, or notes to mention? There are about a good dozen battles, maybe more, that appear in the, the historical record. Um, and you know, the, the, <laughs> this is the sort of thing that, that one can write about or talk about at great length, but um, the campaigns are more the important thing. And what it basically looked like is something like this. Um, they, one can now break up Italy into two basic divisions, one side of the Apennines and the other. And um, on the one side of the Apennines, beginning with the city of Asculum, uh, that city was ultimately taken by Pompeius Strabo, who was now consul. He would go on to celebrate a triumph for this. And then it seems he sent his deputies sort of south, and a number of them you know, uh, ran down the Italian coast. Um, most notably, there was a, a man named Cosconius who did really good work uh, under, of course, the command of Strabo and uh, smacked the allies up and down one part of the peninsula and the other. Um, there was, in fact, even a battle at Cannae. Um, so, I mean, there, you know, one, could, you know, one could only imagine how exhilarated the Romans would have felt to have won this battle on the, the famous battle site from the third century. Um, and to, on the other side of the Apennines and to the south, um, the battle, the, the battles began um, with um, Porcius Cato uh, moving against the allies, but he was killed in combat. And then uh, what basically happened was um, rather than go back to Rome to hold an election for what's called a suffect consul, Strabo basically let uh, Cato's division commanders, if you want to call them that, uh, just keep prosecuting the war. So, I mean, with the, we don't exactly know this for a fact, but it seems what happened based on what we do know is that they were allowed to retain sort of independent commands, presumably if they had lost badly or had done something, then, then they would have had to answer to Strabo, but none of them seem to have done. They seem to have done good work um, and, of course, the most significant one of these was uh, Lucius Cornelius Sulla, who essentially went through the heart of Samnite territory 
winning battle after battle. It really made his reputation such that the next year he was able to run for, or the, towards the end of the year 89, he was able to run for and win election to the, the consul uh, position of 88. The third century reference for everyone listening that Dr. Kendall uh, made there was regarding the Punic, the second Punic War. And uh, the show has covered that in an episode so that it is findable in line, online. That was with Dr. Catherine Lomas of Durham University, if anyone wants to look up that episode. How many different military units would Rome have had in this year if it's known, Seth? And part of why I'm asking that is, if I recall what has come up in the uh, in a previous episode, is that uh, each consul was responsible for an army. So, can you speak about what's known about the uh, how how um, the the army, the Roman army or armies were divided and then also spread out on the peninsula? during this year? Well, we don't have exact numbers, but what it seems like is, uh, well, in the previous year, what it seems like is each consul was responsible for something like six legions, uh, which would have numbered something like you know, 50,000 men apiece. And um, and each, each one of them, I mean, the consul himself themselves seem to have had a personal legion under their control and sent a legion under each one of their prominent lieutenants. Uh, and of course, there were, there were sometimes more if uh, the operation needed it. And it seems that uh, probably each one of the lieutenants commanded at least two legions in the year 89, uh, possibly more, because by this point, they had Latin numbers and could just overwhelm the allies with their sheer numbers. So that's about each one of these division commanders probably had something like two legions under them. So about maybe 10,000 men apiece, um, possibly more depending on the circumstances. And they were constantly sending soldiers back and forth to each other um, as, as was needed once they were made to cooperate. Uh, because some, one of the, the weird things about Roman military history is Sometimes Roman commanders didn't cooperate with each other um, for professional jealousy reasons. But by this, by this point in the war, they seem to have gotten their act together. When you look back on Roman history, you mentioned Sulla performed well from a military perspective in this year. When you look back on Roman history, would you say that this is his most notable performance by this point in history or uh, is there is there something that predates this that uh, is is more notable so why I why why I'm asking the question that way is the sense I got from the last conversation that we had was Marius was more the veteran by this point in in history and it seemed like Sula hadn't quite made the name for himself that he eventually, would uh, would end up making? This is a somewhat complicated question to answer because one has to take into account the politics of the Romans at the time. And here's what this means. Uh, Sulla had previously served as a lieutenant to, to Marius himself 
in the Jigarpane War and had made a name for himself in that he'd been sent uh, with a, a deputation to entrap um, Jugurtha and bring him back to Marius. So uh, Jugurtha had been defeated largely by, by Marius, but, um, but he'd, been ca- he'd been captured essentially because a relative of his sold him out. And this capture is basically what did the Jugurthi War. Now, Sulla was able to claim that, therefore, that his action had brought about the end of this war, which is a completely unjustified claim. But the problem was a lot of Roman aristocrats essentially were essentially propagated this fiction because they hated Marius so much. That, I mean, they didn't like Sulla either, and they wouldn't like him definitely going on, but going into the future. But Sulla was at least an aristocrat, and his ancestors had been uh, in high office. So they were willing to give him all this credit, um, and this, this made Marius fur- furious, as I'm sure you can imagine. Um, the people weren't exactly fooled by this. And they knew what the score was, that Sulla was trying to claim um, this glory for himself that he didn't really have. But he had performed well. Uh, he had done well in the Jugurthine War. He, was, he apparently had been a very talented cavalry commander. So in, at first, he and Marius got along famously. Uh, when later on, the war broke out with um, the Teutones and Cimbri, which is the way the century, the, the second century ended and the first century began, uh, Sulla had been sent as a deputy to first Marius, and then to another consul when he and Marius couldn't stand each other, Marius basically transferred him. And he did well there too, but he hadn't done well enough that he could have um, stood on his own to be consul yet. But because of this war, because of the Allied war and his victories in it, that gave him the military experience that he could uh, use, to, he, could, he could parlay to the consul's uh, role, and then he would win spectacular military successes in the war against uh, the rogue king Mithridates coming up. I'm sure it occurs with certain other societies as well, but I find it fascinating how often politics come up in these conversations when looking at certain battles and and wars with Roman history. Yeah, it, it was a very real thing. Um, you know, the the Romans had traditionally been all right with you know, generals who did who did their best but came short. Uh, the Roman people were, that they could be very forgiving about that sort of thing. But the Roman political class, they didn't want their, they didn't want their generals to become too, too well known. Um, you know, the, the, a, an early example of this, speaking of the Second Punic War, was the way um, Publius Cornelius Scipio, you know, Africanus, spent the end of his days. Um, he had been, his brother had been challenged because his brother had won the office of consul and had been challenged over his uh, conduct of the war in uh, in Asia Minor. And that was essentially a backhanded way to get at Africanus by going after his brother. And he spent sort of the end of his life in retirement and seclusion from Roman politics. And the reasons couldn't, couldn't be clearer that I mean, there's no corruption that we know that Scipio, uh, that either the Scipiones actually engaged in but by suggesting there was a hint of uh, untowardness, they could diminish his reputation. 
and you certainly see politics get involved as well a few decades later with Julius Caesar and Pompey and and the the major pivotal decision that Julius Caesar made to uh, cross the particular river and uh, and lead an army uh, towards Rome. Very much. Um, Caesar, in fact, had probably more of a cause to be bent out of shape because when he did what he did, he was under threat of prosecution. So it was basically either uh, either win this war or face exile or possibly the death penalty. So it was very much politics there. They were they were out to get him. So if we go to so a similar question to what I asked about the the armies the Roman armies so if we look at the other side and the allied communities and within the allied communities there's various states and or communities there's various states or communities how coordinated would they have been during this this year in the records are they are they engaging in in warfare in in a very individual way. So let's say it's the, the army or armies that are purely Etruscan. And then you see uh, people from the Southern Apennine Mountains that would be identified as Samnite people. Were they, were they very individual or do you see more coordination than that amongst the allied communities in this year? Well, one hates to answer the question this way, but uh, a little of both. And here's what this means. Uh, every allied community raised a certain contingent of soldiers, and um, it seems that their, their direct commanders were of the same community. And in, in part, that might have been for military necessity, uh, because not everyone spoke Latin. But that having been said, they more than cooperated with each other. The first year of the war, especially when uh, when things were when the roads were clearer and there was less roads over the, the peninsula, you would often see uh, one group of allies would um, they would lend soldiers to the other. They would come to each other's aid uh, and then break apart again. And that sort of spirit of cooperation extends into the year eighty nine. Though things got a little dicier because the Romans were winning. And as they began to take control of the roads and the passes, it was difficult, more difficult for the Allies to coordinate. But they were definitely coordinating um, to the best of their abilities. Is it clear, and might might be difficult, uh, there might not be one answer, but I'm curious to, one, one clear answer, but I'm interested to hear how you approach this response. When you look at the records, is there is there one side that is on the offense and one side that's on the defense during this year? Um, there, yeah, there, yeah, I think that the best way to phrase it is there isn't a clear answer, but it seems that the Romans were far more... I mean, the Romans had been on the offensive in the first year, too, but it seems the Romans had more of the initiative in the, because they could build on their successes. So because they went uh, on the successful attack, they could keep disrupting the allies. There were certainly allied attacks. So if a Roman legion moved into the area, an allied, or, or an allied army might attack it. Um, but it seems that the initiative had shifted to the Romans who were building on the momentum of their success. Did any diplomacy take place during this year? 
Actually, yes. Um, one of the veterans of this war was a, a an obscure Roman named Marcus Tullius Cicero. I'm not sure if your audience would have heard of him, um, but he would go on. That's a little joke. He would go on to become, you know, Cicero, uh, who tormented schoolboys with Latin ever since. But when he was 16 years old, he actually fought in this war, and he describes that there had been a brief parley between one Italian commander by the name of Vettius Scato and his overall general, the consul of Pompeius Strabo. And um, it, you know, he was, Strabo was trying to induce Scato to surrender. And the story goes that they had a meeting and, um, and uh, uh, Scato could speak Latin. So uh, Strabo asked him, how shall I address you? As, you know, and he said, well, address me as someone who would want to be your friend, but who politics is making into an enemy. And that has so many meanings. I want to be your friend. I want to be a fellow citizen, but I'm forced to be your enemy because I can't be. And there was a parlay, and it didn't apparently come to anything because you know the, the uh, fighting soon broke out after that. So there were various efforts to um, to... On the they're on the Allied side to try and negotiate a settlement, but the Romans weren't having it at this point. Um, probably the bigger diplomatic maneuvers were that the Allies began to cast about for help. Um, in fact, they sent a deputation to the king of Pontus, who would go on to be a huge irritant to the Romans, Mithridates, uh, asking for help. And he seems to have responded by slaughtering every uh, Latin-speaking person he could find in his kingdom, though he didn't send soldiers, he didn't send money. Um, but there was a, a, a series of coins that were struck that seemed to indicate, I mean, they show uh, two people shaking hands, one on the prow of the boat, which sort of bespeaks uh, optimism that this alliance of Mithridates might prove fruitful. On the point of coinage, by this year in 89 were the allied communities printing their own coins and if so what's known about that they printed them actually they issued minted them uh, the previous year too yeah they were still uh, issuing coins um you know the, uh, the the coinage is a is a fascinating uh series of issues because the iconography that they use um the the iconography is a, one of them one of the uh the images on coins were uh, this group of eight um, men raising swords uh, in the sky to symbolize an early stage of the Allies that later on that got diminished uh, because probably to fit on the coin better over a sacrificial uh, an animal to show that they're if they were uh, uh, bonded by blood. Uh, they <clears throat> uh, depicted the bull, which is supposed to be the symbol of Italy, the bull goring a wolf which basically speaks to itself, right? The Italian bull goring the Roman wolf. Uh, there was this issue of this uh, a, a Italian person on land shaking hands with uh, someone else on a ship. So yeah, the imagery is fascinating. And you, and you find writing on the coins. Uh, some of it is in, which is the language the Samnites and the Lucani would have spoken. And some of it is in Latin, which is what the other would have spoken. So, and the, the coins are basically, you know, hopeful uh, and defiant. Where and how how confederated 
was was that effort of printing coins when when coinage is being referenced by this point in time is it known like where the coins were being minted and were they being distributed amongst all of the allied communities by by that point in time um it isn't known exactly where um a, a coin would have been minted um because uh yeah, they don't bear certain markings that would indicate this is coin is being minted in uh in corpinium uh it seems that they you know the, that they were minted in if they and they so they might all have been minted at the same place uh, possibly corpinium which was the capital that they had set up for their the headquarters of their effort or it might have been a local affair um so i mean we uh we and we we find the, these uh, coins sort of haphazardly, which makes sense. Probably what would happen. Probably we find them in um, in battlefields where uh, soldiers had them in their pockets or had them in their purses, and they got uh, they you know went down in battle or find them in some communities. But it seems reasonably short, certain that they were circulated amongst all the Italian communities. But the the way about coins is they get reused. So once a coin, I mean, probably what happened is when the war was finally over, all these old uh, Italian confederated coins were melted down and restruck as Roman coins. Does that answer your question? It does. Thank you. The, do any of those coins, so you mentioned that the, the melting process, so I heard that, did, did, did any survive? Do any show up in the records and are available today? Uh, you can still find them. Yeah, uh, people still find them all the time. Um, the images that most people who uh, who do work on this, um, Richard Rowland, for example, uh, Michael Crawford, um, and uh, they, they, they use essentially um, the, the, the coins that are present in Musea. So, I mean, the images that I use in, in my own book are from coins that you could find in the British Museum, and they very generously allow me to to use the images from their website. So working our way, Seth, to the end of 89 BCE, so can you describe what's known about what the situation would have been by the end of the year that we're speaking about today? Yeah, um, by the end of the year 89, most of the Italian communities, not all of them, but most of them had been functionally knocked out of the war, many of them because they had been defeated and they had begun to surrender. Um, now, the, the, the war was still going on and there were still armies in the field, but by the end of the year, um, the, by the end of the year 89, most people who were, most of the, uh, the Italians who were still fighting were Samnites and Lucani. And there are various reasons that are speculated as to why this is. Um, one of them is that the uh, Samnites and Lucani had been different from their fellow uh, Italians with whom they were confederated and that they didn't want to be Roman citizens. They wanted to be completely independent. And there is some evidence for that. Um, it seems that they would have accepted citizenship as a, as a second offer uh, if they, the Romans wouldn't leave them alone. But one thing is certain that the Samnites were not going to have, uh, to accept a defective citizenship. So, and they and they still were in the field. And 
um, the Samnites had given the Romans, you know, a um, had given the Romans significant problems in previous centuries. So they had a pretty good martial spirit. They were still in the field in late 89, early uh, 88. Um, but most of the others had been had been uh, taken out and had surrendered. In the last episode on year 205, you mentioned that the majority of the victories would have gone to, would have went to the Allied communities in that given year, so 90. In 89, it sounds like it's very much the, the opposite. It's, it's in, inverted. Why, why do you think that is? What, when you look back on the, on the records, why do you think that the, the momentum of this war by this point in 89 had shifted to the Roman side? Well, I think in part um, it's because the Roman people had begun to take this war seriously. Um, that they, you know, the Appian, described, Appian of Alexandria, one of the sources, describes the Romans at first seem to have approached it as an easy victory, and they should have known better. And by the year 89, they did. Um, part of it is that they had gotten, um, well, most of the people who fought in this year, uh, the, the commanders had fought, had been veterans of, this, of, this, uh, of the first year. So the commanders were better, um, and you know, and, but probably the main reason, uh, and co of course, the Allies had also suffered some losses. But probably the main reason why the Romans had done so much better in the year '89 is because they had um, the wealth of Latin soldiers. So when you combine all those things together, uh, they could they had enough momentum to drive the alliance basically to its knees. The Roman soldiery, of course, they they weren't perfect. Um, you know, the new recruits had had to be levied, and the Romans are still drawing from Roman citizens, many of whom had not fought before. And so you know, their raw recruits were sometimes um, embarrassingly bad. And the Roman soldiers did have a bit of a discipline problem, especially in the southern theater. Um, there are actually mutinies that break out. Um, one of them killed a, a subordinate commander, a naval commander named Albinus, uh, he was actually uh, murdered by his soldiers. And there was another one under the direct command of Cato, who didn't last for very long before he was killed in battle. But there was a, he had got pelted with dirt clods in an assembly by soldiers who didn't like what he was saying. And he rounded up the ringleaders and sent them back to Rome for trial. Um, so, you know, the, the Romans seemed, I mean, the, the soldiers were not by this point, um, you know, the well-oiled machine that they had been in the past. But they were getting there, and most of these these little uh, outbreaks, these disciplinary outbreaks, happened early in the year eighty nine. By the end of the year, the Roman army was firing on all soldiers. Okay. Is there any last point that you want to make about this year that you felt we didn't cover, Seth, or do you think this is a place where we can wrap up the conversation today? There's a bit of foreshadowing that. Uh, needs to be sort of mentioned. Uh, in the year 89, when Marius was essentially out of the army, he spent some time at one of his, uh, one of his villas, but he spent most of it in the city of Rome itself. And he began to 
uh, engaged in military training exercises. The, the, the Romans had sort of a, a training ground on the campus Martius, and uh, he, Marius, at you know, he would have been over over sixty, right in his seventies by this point, was out there doing these training exercises, showing that he could still do them, basically. Which I mean, may have been something his doctor prescribed, get some exercise, but probably not. Probably what he was showing to the Roman people by these maneuvers was that he was healthy enough to serve as a soldier and was healthy enough to serve as a general should they need him for something. And they would need a general coming up because everyone knew that once this disturbance in Italy was over, they were going to have to send an army to the east to fight Mithridates. And Marius wanted that command. He wanted it badly. So he was sort of showing to the Roman people, remember me, I'm available, I'm healthy, you know, um, maybe consider me for this job. Um, the other significant uh, sort of uh, foreshadowing from this year is some aspects of the, uh, the way that Sulla fought when Albinus was murdered by his, his own soldiers. Um, Sulla essentially absorbed his command. Presumably, uh, the consul Pompeius let him do this. And the soldiers were worried about, about being you know, disciplined. And Sulla essentially told them something along the lines of, if you want to show your contrition, fight better the next time. And they did. They fought enthusiastically for him in the next series of battles, um, which was a way that Sulla could, I mean, Sulla would eventually make a career of this. He would win the support of compromised men, usually by promising them, if you stick with me, you're not going to suffer the consequences of your actions. In fact, you might even be rewarded for them. And he would, he would make use of this extensively uh, in the year 88. Okay. For covering, for the most part, one year, we covered a lot of ground in under an hour and uh, it's always a pleasure speaking with you, Seth. Thanks for coming on the show again. Well, thank you for having me. So again, everybody, the book that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Kendall wrote, he's author of The Struggle for Roman Citizenship, Romans, Allies, and the Wars of 91 to 77 BCE. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Seth and everybody listening, as always, Wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.